Hi again, folks, and welcome back to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zev Nakajima again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to have you with us. And I hope you're all still staying uh, safe and cautious and virus-free. Here in Japan, an emergency state has finally been officially declared. And while it's not as strict or nearly as enforceable as it is in uh, many other countries, it is still a hell of a lot better than what we've had here so far. And with the Japanese generally being compliant when requested by authorities to do something or refrain from doing something, results um, have been mostly good. I've actually had to venture into the city center a few days ago, and I'm happy to report the streets have looked satisfyingly vacant, finally. So hopefully we're on the right track here, and we might actually see some decline in infection and death numbers. Fingers crossed. Now, I've completely neglected mentioning this in our last episode, but that was actually our 100th Japan Real Estate Podcast episode. Yes, way to go, folks. It's been um, quite a journey since we started about two years ago in a bit, and we've talked about all sorts of things from market fundamentals, investment strategies, holiday homes, economy, and even some social and mindset issues, mostly focusing on Japan, of course, but it was a pleasure to see how we've sometimes managed to broaden our horizons, uh, mainly thanks to feedback from you guys, from our listeners, and we touched on all sorts of wider topics as well. And again, the only reason we're still doing this is thanks to the feedback and response from all of you. So you've now downloaded this podcast more than 20,000 times from all over the world, including some countries which, honestly, I never thought anyone would even tune in from. So thanks again for your support. It's been really great to have uh, all of you with us for so long. And if you've only just joined us recently, we do hope you'll find value in what we're doing here. Please let us know if you do. And of course, what you'd like us to talk about in the future as well. Now, before we get right into today's conversation, a few housekeeping items. So firstly, our next webinar, we've added a couple of topics based on your responses to the online survey and registration form that many of you have already filled in. So we're going to also chat a bit about how to invest during times of crisis. Of course, use the most current example of the COVID-19 pandemic as our case study. How to plan for a crisis ahead of time, mitigate risk appropriately, and then be able to respond profitably when the thesis hits the fan, as it always does every once in a while. And also, uh, based on your request, we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, REITs, real estate investment trusts, and more specifically JREITs, which are the Japanese version of those. So that was another topic you mentioned you want us to discuss. What exactly are JREITs, how to pick them, uh, what are some of the prominent ones and the sectors that they're active in, and also how they compare to traditional property investments, uh, bricks and mortar overall. And again, based on your feedback through the webinar registration form, we're also going to touch a bit upon uh, syndications and group investments. And of course, as promised, we're mainly going to focus on deal analysis and do a lot of Q&A. So we're going to have some good fun with all these topics, should be packed full of valuable info. And if you haven't done so yet, do click on the link in this episode show notes, throw in your votes on your preferred day and time slots that are convenient for you. And of course, place your vote on which of the topics you'd like us to expand the most on, or do feel free to add um, some of your own. The pre-submitted topics and questions list is getting a bit longer, so we're going to try our best not to go beyond the two hours this time, like we've done last time. So it is a good idea to get your votes in there now rather than later to make sure that we cover the topics that you want to hear discussed uh, in more detail. Okay, so enough housekeeping. Let's get right into today's episode. And this one's actually an interview that I recently gave um, to a great little podcast aimed at small business owners in Japan, uh, named, not surprisingly, Small Business Japan. The host, Josh Smith, does a really great job in providing super valuable content for um, people who have recently started or are planning to start uh, their small business here in the land of the rising sun. 
And he occasionally interviews people like myself who've already jumped through most of the hoops and are already established and operating their business for some time so that people can learn from our experience and, of course, from our mistakes, which every business owner makes along the way. So we had a good long chat about business, real estate, the general state of affairs in Japan's business arena these days, globalization, market basics, and a lot of other good stuff. So without further ado, here it is, uh, our interview with Joss Smith of Small Business Japan. Enjoy. Uh, welcome to the show. What's your connection to Japan? Um, I wasn't much of it till about 2003, and then I met a lovely Japanese lady when I was living in Australia. So I sort of married into the country, um, coming and going uh, since then, and sort of moved here on a more permanent basis in 2013 or so. Mm. So you've been you've been there for a while, huh? Yeah, I mean, living, really living here is just uh, for the past uh, seven, eight years now. Okay. And had you had experience with Japan before that then? No, none whatsoever. I had a bit of sushi, but that would have been about it. Yeah. Okay. And let's see, tell us a little about your business and what are some of your revenue streams? Um, okay, so our business is essentially representing um, foreigners, either foreigners living in Japan or vast majority of them living out of Japan, um, who are interested in Japan's property market. So we, Japan being a bit of a tough market to enter culturally and, and language-wise, we just represent them as if they were here, if they're not here, uh, and as if they spoke and read and write the language, uh, even if they are here and just don't have the skills. Um, or in other people's cases, um, just don't have the uh, time or the inclination to deal with it directly. Mm. So we help them um, identify properties that they're interested in purchasing and then everything essentially. So negotiation, um, deal selection, due diligence, and then full representation through the purchase and then through the management purposes uh, purchase as well. Uh, and then if they're interested in selling it at any point down the track, we can assist them. So that's where our revenues essentially come from is um, purchase and sale fees and then proper portfolio management fees. Okay. And is this uh, a market or an industry that you became familiar with after moving to Japan? We had a little bit of experience. Uh, we had investment property in Australia. Um we thought we knew what we were doing at the time, but it's a completely different market. So we gained a lot of the experience um, just setting up and, and running our own portfolio here. And then uh, a year or two down the track, we started providing the same service for others. Too. Wow. And was that because you noticed uh, a hole in the market or what led you to to that venture? Um, yeah, I mean, we noticed the first thing we noticed is that it's very it's a very attractive market. Um, uh, on a few levels, I mean, firstly, it's uh, it was quite affordable at the time. Um, this was on the back of 25 years of uh, deflation that sort of bottomed out and reversed a bit now. But um, aside from Tokyo and Osaka, still around the country, there are quite a few attractive, very affordable properties. And the cash flow is very high compared to other countries, at least in the developed world. Um, and it's just... It's just Japan, you know, it's hassle-free. The tenants are docile and the professional companies that you deal with are um, uh, not necessarily 100% professional or proactive, but they definitely wouldn't swindle you or run away with your cash or everything is documented and you know, there's a paper trail a few miles long for every transaction. So it's a, just an attractive market. Yeah. 
You mentioned a lot of the, it sounded like the majority of the customers that, that you have are not residents of Japan. Correct. So are, I guess, are you handling the property management side of things as well or directing them to how they can actually run the business, even, even you know, with good tenants? Um, with the ones not living in Japan, it's a bit more difficult for them to um, do anything on their own. Um, for the basic uh, basic reason that, for one, they can't open a bank account. Uh, local companies here are still not very um, international transaction savvy. So aside from the fact that they don't speak or provide any documentation in English, um, they also it's difficult for them to wrap their head around the concept of, of sending or receiving funds overseas and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are sort of an added layer on top of the property managers and the uh, realtors. So we work with third-party uh, partnerships with realtors, property managers, um, insurance company, uh, and also other aspects like uh, building management. These are very local companies that didn't even know how to deal with an overseas customer in most cases. Uh, tax departments and so forth. So we're sort of a single point of contact, um, like an added layer between the buyer, sellers, managers, and the market here. What type of investment properties are some of those uh, potential investors looking for? Um, Well, it's not strictly investment. I guess about 20% of our customers are actually buying holiday properties or land Mm -hmm. um, for development. a few of them buy ski properties, onsen properties uh, that they sometimes rent out by the month when they're not there, but uh, usually for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. Investment-wise, which is most of our business, um, so far the main attraction has been um, highest potential cash flow. People just were not very comfortable with Japan's uh, growth potential. Mm-hmm. So they were focusing more on um, high rental percentage yield. And for that, the most popular properties tend to be uh, slightly on the older side, smaller side, studio, one-bedroom apartments um, in not mega central, but in big cities, but not super central locations. So sort of um, the ring around the inner circle. Um, And those tend to uh, generate the higher yields. These days... Since 2013 or late 2012, the economy has sort of taken a step up. Um, so people are a bit more open now to potential capital growth plays. So we do see more people purchasing small buildings with a larger land parcel, um, buying maybe bigger apartments that have a bigger land footprint, even a few houses, uh, even for investment purposes. Um, but still, the cash cows are a small studio and one-bedroom unit. So even if you're buying a small building, you'd usually... Uh, sort of direct your attention to smaller, older buildings. Yeah. For you helping people find those investments, has it has it gotten significantly more difficult? I know here in the states, it's sort of a the real estate game is a bit of a free for all, where you know it, it became the 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 cool thing to do for a while. And I know there's you know there's numerous numerous podcasts like bigger pockets and things like that that mm. has sort of encouraged everyone to become like a flipper um which yeah. is I, the market is pretty much dried up and it's really hard to find a, a deal are you seeing a situation like that in japan 
Um, not really. I mean, deals have become a bit less profitable cash flow wise. But on the other hand, that's because prices went up. So they have become a bit more profitable uh, capital growth wise. Um, competition. I mean, Japan's a bit funny like that. The, um, I don't want to say national psyche because that's like a huge generalization. But um, as a rule, they're pretty risk averse. And um, especially people who have been burned or have seen their parents burned by the 1990s uh, bubble crash have got a real reluctance to get into real estate. So the buyers, the sellers that we buy from usually would be um, either older people, so people who have you know lived through a few boom and bust cycles and um, are not too phased and are, have still got quite a few properties that they bought back in the olden days. Um, and then when they're getting on in years, um, they ask their kids what they want to do, what they want them to do when they pass away. Do they want to inherit the properties and keep on managing? And the kids usually say, no, just give us cash, at which point they put them on the market and sell them. Um, or uh, there are companies, quite a few of them, that do this um, uh, as a li- uh, for a living. So smaller real estate companies that do flips or innovations and sales and that sort of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, it's definitely not nearly as popular. It is the world's second biggest, uh, property investment market. So it is second only to the USA, uh, transaction wise and, and capital wise. Um, but the competition, a lot of it is from overseas and a lot of it is, um, elderly people. Having said that Japan does have quite a few elderly people uh, out there. Mm-hmm. But uh, not nearly as not nearly as bad. Now, if you talk to your average uh, Japanese salary man or somebody you know you meet at the bar or the restaurant or doing work, they usually would not be very open or aware of property investment. Oh, okay. When you were starting up your business, um, did you bootstrap or did you have help from the outside? Um, as bootstrap as it gets, yeah. We were working. Uh, we were living in Australia at the time, so we started in two thousand. 11, late 2011, we only moved here in uh, late 2013. So the first couple of years, we were still doing it uh, from Australia and just taking trips here whenever it was necessary. Okay. And um, yeah, we worked from home, uh, sort of in between uh, housework and kid work and that sort of thing. So late nights. Uh, we actually took as long as we could before we set up anything beyond the home office and started hiring staff, probably a bit too long. Um, but yeah, definitely bootstrap. Alrighty. And when you made that move from Australia, did you, I guess, where are you located? Are you set up in Tokyo? No, no, we're in Fukuoka. So on the southeast uh, side of the country. So like the uh, gateway, I guess, to Southeast Asia. It's actually a lot closer to China, Taiwan, Korea than it is to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. Everyone just seems to think, uh, well, Tokyo is sort of the center, the hub of activity in Japan. Do you find yourself having to visit there often, or can you do most of your your work online? Um, we do a, almost 100% of our work online, just because most people, when they buy investment properties, prefer them uh, tenanted, meaning there's already a tenant in there, they're already generating income. And in Japan, the uh, law is very tenant oriented. So you can't enter a property for inspections, even when you renew the lease or even when you sell it. Mm-hmm. Um, so as long as they're buying tenanted properties, we usually be doing everything remotely um, via our realtor partners and they're located anywhere in Japan. Mm-hmm. 
specifically Tokyo, um, wheels are really compressed. We don't do many deals in Tokyo unless it's a real gem. Uh, so I go there two, three times a year, mostly um, to do seminars for expats who are living in Tokyo or to meet some business partners. Um, but work-wise, most of it is remote. And when customers do come in, if they want a tour of properties that they purchased or potential properties to purchase, or just a, a tour of a particular area that we're interested in, uh, we just go and meet them there, wherever in the country it might be. Um, it's usually not in Tokyo, though. Tokyo is just not... Um, just over overheated at the moment, so there's not many attractive deals there. Yeah, I guess for our listeners, um, what what would be some of those areas that you're seeing potential value in? Um, when we started out, Fukuoka was definitely the hot cake at the time. It wasn't still uh, well known to Westerners, so there were very good deals to be had, and it. Um, it has gone up in price significantly, so the, the graph has gone up as sharply as Tokyo and Osaka did since 2012. Um, but Fukuoka started a lot lower, so it still has a lot of room to grow. Um, in the last two, three years or so, it has gotten to the point where yields are almost halved compared to what they were. So they've gone down to about seven, seven and a half uh, net before tax, if we're lucky these days. So for some people, that's still very attractive. I mean, people from uh, Singapore, Hong Kong, Australia, who can't get anything more than 3 or 4% um, are usually quite happy with that. But our other customers, people who can get better deals in the USA or in Europe and some of the other Asian countries, uh, they've migrated to other places. So we see a lot of deals in um, Sapporo, Kumamoto, Nagoya, um, some of the satellite cities around Tokyo and Osaka, so like little bedroom communities uh, that are say, within 45, 60 minutes by train from the big city. Um, Some prefectural capitals like Sendai, and the main city in Shikoku, I forget the name. And uh, anywhere in the country, actually. And Fukuoka is still still quite attractive for a lot of people. Yeah. Some of the people who are interested in, like you said, moving there as either a second home or uh, using it part-time, are there options like uh, Airbnb or is it more long-term rentals that they're looking at? I, I know some of the areas Airbnb is better bit um, of a kind of a no-touch subject. Yeah, it's been becoming increasingly difficult, Airbnb, all over the country. Um, June last year, they passed new legislation that only allows you to do 180 days a year. So half the year you can lease it out via Airbnb or or they don't call it Airbnb, Minpaku, which is short-term stays. So anything that's done without the tenancy leased in place, which is usually for a few days or a few weeks. And that's become increasingly difficult. So the government wants people to either set up as an inn or a hotel and actually apply for a license and run a proper operation. Okay. Or you can do it if you're living in the property and you're renting out rooms like a guest house sort of thing uh, as a side job. But if you're the practice of just um, buying properties and renting them out as Airbnb as a side business is sort of clamped down on. And long-term leases don't work for holiday makers because you have to let somebody live in the property for two years at a time and renew. Um, I mean, you can't just use it for two months a year when you come in. But there's um, there's a sweet spot in between um, what they call here monthly mansion. Uh, and these are monthly rentals that are done with a lease. So they don't actually fall under the uh, Minpaku legislation. So 
that can't be uh, that can't be prohibited even by building management companies, even though they do try, but they don't have a legal leg as far as that's concerned. That's usually what people would do um, if they want to use a place uh, for a small part of the year and then lease it out when they're not here. So it's not as profitable as, sorry, it's not as profitable as Airbnb, but it's more profitable than long-term leases. I see. Yeah. But I, and I would imagine that rental for the monthly leases also really depends on location near a tourist area or a bigger city, something like that. Uh, less so than Airbnb, because a lot of the people who are leasing out by the month are, uh, say, Japanese company men who are relocated for a project or a certain period of time or people who go in for a few months to take care of elderly parents um, and not holiday makers, but people who come here uh, for a course or a study or for a longer term stay in some location to do something specific. So it's a bit more seasonal um, than long term leases or location specific, but um, and you do have to pick your properties a bit more carefully. Um, because some, somewhere that's very suburban would still have regular tenants for long-term leases, but for monthly people prefer to be closer to the city center, closer to a major train station. So again, it's sort of in between, um, in between the um, lack of stability that Airbnb offers and the full stability that the long-term lease offers. Yeah. Okay. So it sounds like you've built your company up, and are you trying to limit? The number of workers or do you, I mean, I guess how many people do you have on staff or are you more working as like kind of subcontracting? Um, our work model is sort of limiting our staff numbers uh, by default because we work with third parties and we're not actually doing the property management. We're not actually the uh, real, real estate agents or the realtors ourselves. Okay. And we're definitely not the renovation and repair professionals. So we work with third parties for all of that. So. I don't think we're going to see any explosive growth, at least while we're handling only Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got three people here in our uh, headquarters in Fukuoka. Uh, we've got a bookkeeper, part-time bookkeeper that comes in to do uh, the job as necessary. And we've got our sales and marketing manager uh, who actually works from uh, home in Canada. And then she also employs third parties, so she works with other agents or other people who are either doing an internship or just happy to share commissions and so forth. Yeah, That's probably, I mean, we might get one more staff member because the admin side is getting a bit too heavy, but probably not far beyond that. Along your path of, of growing, have you had any mistakes along the way or maybe failures, the kind of roadblocks that kind of made you question if this is really the right path to stay on? Um, not anything that made us quit. I mean, the first year was obviously very hard. It took us about a year to get our first customer. Um, just for obvious reasons, I mean, internet, um, remote investment was just becoming a thing uh, when we started out. So this was about eight, almost nine years ago now. Mm-hmm. So it did take a bit of time to uh, get the first few people who would actually agree to um, hand over the money to people that they've never met face-to-face. Yeah. Um, once we got the first one or two customers under our belt, it was um, it became smooth sailing from there on. I guess our main mistake was probably not planning for growth or not admitting that we need to grow fast enough. Mm-hmm. So we were getting a lot more uh, customers than we had properties for, which was, you know, 
good trouble to have. Yeah. Um, but we, um, rather I actually, um, had this uh, long, long-term dream of always working from home and always uh, being uh, in my shorts kind of thing and being available for my family. So I postponed getting an office and getting staff and uh, that sort of thing for probably a year longer than I should have. And we're still playing catch with that. So that, that put a bit of a dent in our uh, plan. And the other thing is, was uh, automated systems. So same story. We didn't plan ahead for um, just the amount of data that we're going to have to be managing on a regular basis. So it was only two years ago that we actually started looking at automated solutions for managing all of that thing. And um, we ended up going with an in-house system that's being developed um, as we speak, actually final stages now. But again, that's probably a couple of years too late. So that took effect on just on the level of service. Um, not service on the ground. I mean, we still, we handle vacancies and repairs and maintain anything that can affect income. We, we handle as a top priority. So customer's income was not affected, but our reporting frequency has dropped significantly. So mm-hmm. we went from monthly statements now to uh, biannual or annual statements, which a lot of our older customers were used to um more frequent level of reporting are just not very happy with. Um, but yeah, growing pains, I guess. Yeah. And what's something that you've changed your mind about Japan? Um, I was sort of a blank slate when I came here, so there wasn't much to change my mind on, I guess. Um, maybe more, I mean, living here, you just learn and working with the Japanese and especially now that my son's going to school in Japan, so I'm a bit more exposed to um education system um it's just the amount of things that you learn on how they work on a daily basis right like you keep thinking you've sort of figured them out and there's another layer there that you haven't really uh, haven't really figured out like for me what was the latest thing is um in school when at least in elementary school they um when they stand up in front of the class to to give an answer they're when they're done with the answer, they're supposed to ask the class if the class agrees with the answer. And the class sort of recites, yes, that's right, like everyone together, regardless of whether the answer was actually right or wrong. So this whole peer approval as opposed to actual critical thinking was was a bit of an eye-opener for me. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, there's, there's stuff on, an, on a daily basis, but uh, it's part of the fun, I guess. Yeah. With your business, how are you standing out from the crowd and getting attention? I mean, I'm not sure if you have much competition or not. Um, I know that you have a, a great podcast that I listen to as well. And oh, thank from you. what I can tell, uh, you seem to be the only one, which is kind of amazing. <laughs> uh, we're definitely the only one in the audio sphere. Um, and we were the only one doing what we do when we started out. Okay. Um, and we're still maybe not the only one, but definitely one of the few who actually provide nationwide coverage at all affordability levels. So there are local agencies um, that um, local realtors that work in particular cities. So Tokyo has quite a few. Osaka has maybe four or five of them. Uh, even Fukuoka these days has one or two. And people covering Osaka might cover Nagoya, that sort of thing. But they're focused, well, for one, they're realtors. So their their main interest is in, in concluding a particular sale that they've got their eyes on selling. And on the other hand, they're quite uh, locally um, focused. So the ones that do provide uh, services in English, um, 
just a handful of them in each city at best. And then they focus on their areas of expertise. So there's nobody actually, aside from the big international brokers who do cover nationwide, but then they wouldn't look at deals that are below, say, two or three hundred thousand uh, dollars, okay. which for so smaller the corporation level. Yeah, I mean, obviously they've got overhead. They've got a big fancy Tokyo or Osaka office, and they need to cover costs. So they're not going to be looking at the sort of deals that most of our customers are interested in, which are um, within the fifty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollar mark in most cases. Mm. Um, which for smaller investors is just not an option to go for the bigger companies like that, um, especially since there's no financing available in Japan. So we're the only ones that I'm aware of that um, provide, at least until the last couple of years, that provide nationwide coverage at any sort of entry level. So just by default of having that niche that gave us a lot of attention uh, to begin with. And um, since then, I mean, we've never advertised or attended trade shows or put up signs or, or ads anywhere. We just provide a lot of content. So uh, myself and our marketing team um, put out a lot of content on a regular basis, either on um, magazines or online uh, online websites specializing in uh, overseas investment or Japan real estate specifically. Um, so we just propagate that content on our own channels and then on other other channels, social media, website. Um, we get invited to speak on um, podcasts or to write articles for particular pu- publications. Um, a lot of uh, answers on forums and groups, people asking questions either about um, Japan specifically or about international investing as a rule. So we provide um, just answers from our own expertise sort of thing. Um, and then people just tend to find us. We'll take a short break and come back with the Shinkansen speed round. Welcome back. Ziv, where were you born? Israel. And where do you currently reside? Uh, Fukuoka, Japan. And how old are you now? For, 40, sorry, 45, almost 46 now. <laughs> okay. What do you do for stress relief? Um, wow. Uh, loads of stuff, depending on the day and the time, I guess. If it's the weekend, I'm usually uh, found around the family sort of thing. Um, either outdoors, depending on weather, or indoors. Um, my son and I like to uh, play a lot of games. My wife is usually the one pushing us to get out there and go hiking and that sort of thing. Um, otherwise, photography is a big thing for me. Reading and jogging, cycling. I like to play poker. Sorry, that's not Shinkansen anymore, though, is it? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. That's, that's a lot of stress relief. That's great. What's a... F- Japanese food or drink that you're sort of hooked on right now? Um, I'm a Fukuoka gene, so I'd have to say ramen. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Particular style or a particular restaurant? Hakata ramen, man, number one. Uh, restaurant, no. I mean, there's so many of them. We actually um, we had a ramen festival here in Fukuoka, and we tasted each and every one, and then we're like, nah, any backstreet shop in Fukuoka has better ramen than that. So yeah. That'll yeah. be it, yeah. Where was the last place you vacationed, and for how long? I go to Thailand once a year. That would, be, would have been my last one, uh, usually for about two, two and a half weeks. I just I have my favorite little island that I get onto. What book would you recommend for our small business Japan listeners? Last one I read that was Japan specific was uh, Business Door by uh, Hiroshi Kitani, uh, Rakuten's uh, founder and Chacho. And that one that one was really good. He actually wrote it in English or um, 
He might have written it in Japanese and had it translated, but just knowing him, I think he would have written it in English because it's very uh, English-oriented. Mm. So it's written in pretty simple English, um, but it's got some real gems in there. I mean, I was spending a lot of time with uh, Marker just highlighting spots. Covers a lot of um, the Japanese philosophy of doing business for one, but also very Japan-specific aspects um, that for him are natural, but for people um, reading it as a foreigner, there's a lot of eye-openers there. How about in in your area of expertise re- relating to real estate in Japan? Is there a, are there any good books out there yet, or not really? Uh, there's a couple. I mean, I want to say our our series of ebooks. We've got two of them so far that are focused on investment. Okay. Uh, that are pretty good. Uh, otherwise, if you're doing it on your own. Um, there's a very good series called Landed. That's uh, Christopher Dillon. He's a really nice guy. I met him a few times, actually. Uh, so he's written a, a series of um, guides on how to purchase property in particular locations in and around, I think, only in Asia. But he could have been spreading his wings to other countries as well. Okay. Um, so it's called Landed, uh, Landed Japan. And it's a very good. Uh, I think he's actually put in a uh, update in the last few years. Um on uh, just things that have changed in the economy and the legislation and so forth. So that, that's a really good book as well. It's more focused on, uh, I think, people purchasing for their own purposes uh, rather than for investment, but I could be wrong. The ebooks that you mentioned, those can be found on your website? When you sign up to it, when you uh, click on our website for the first time, there's a little pop-up that comes back, uh, up that you can close immediately if you don't want to see it that um, prompts you to join the uh, mailing list and then you get it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll also, um, I'll provide the link for you if you want to put it in the show notes. People can just download it directly. That'd be great. What is some advice that you would give for someone starting their own small business? For me, the most important um uh, like the thing that really uh, was an eye-opener for me was just don't be afraid to own a niche. Um, if there's something that you're particularly interested or particularly good at or uh, for some reason are particularly attracted to, um, don't even stop to think about, oh, but, you know, there are not too many people out there who might be. There's always a crowd out there who is waiting exactly for you to be doing this. And um, it actually makes... Um, it actually makes your marketing a whole lot easier if uh, you're the only uh, the only one operating in your sphere. So whatever niche you might be attracted to, just don't be afraid to own it. Um, becoming an expert in, in one field, um, as niche as it may be, um, and you might already be an expert if you're thinking about starting a business, you're not going to regret that. And the other thing is uh, uh, don't be afraid of uh, sales and marketing. Um, the old adage that um, salespeople have to be pushy and do cold calls and uh, and uh, just get out there and uh, convince people is just not true anymore. I mean, it's an internet savvy, content savvy world. People are just happy to recognize expertise, and your sales will just take care of themselves if you're out there. And have you been running your own business for a while? Um. Not really. I mean, before our son was born, we sort of shifted towards um, when we recognized that we were pregnant, we wanted to um, uh, be home with him. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, his mother and I, um, my first wife who, who uh, passed away, she she and I set up a business in Australia and we were just we wanted to work together and we wanted to uh, be able to have a family sort of business. So we were doing um 
we were importing uh, goods from uh, Thailand and a few other countries and selling them just around Australian markets and festivals and so forth, um, which was a nice sort of uh, way of living. But beyond that, no, this is my uh, my first um, sort of I know business environment, business kind of thing. And you, uh, along that way, the desire or the passion to maintain your your freedom and that type of lifestyle trumped needing the stability of a of a paycheck. Um, yeah, that's that's never been the case for me, I guess. Um, I, I must have had like good education in that sense because um, my, my dad was a. Uh, was running his own business since I remember uh, him mm-hmm. and uh, my mom which is the stark opposite of him is sort of uh, do go where your heart takes you kind of uh, uh, aging hippie kind of thing so between the two of them it was never a fear for me I guess right. a stable paycheck I should have actually uh, as I was getting older I should have probably considered that a bit more than I did at the time but it turned out well so yeah 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 What's something that you're excited about right now? I guess um, globalization. In, in, a, in a, I mean, it sounds a bit cliche, but I like how um, everything is being done. Uh, technology just makes everything so accessible these days. Like for us to do our business, for uh, people to stay in touch uh, overseas, for people to travel around roaming, Corona and so aside, but um, it's just becoming a really more transparent world i hope which you know brings out a lot of crap that we haven't dealt with as a race but i think in the long run it's a good thing so yeah i enjoy that the world is definitely becoming more connected i think mm. in a good way and like you said sometimes mm. that forces us to deal with uh problems and things that we don't often confront but mm. what is next for you um well once we finish handling those um Automation and growing pains procedures that I've mentioned, which will probably take us, I hope, not more than another year or so. Um, we hope to eventually expand the same sort of model that we're doing here to other countries as well. Okay. Um, so Chicago, my wife, uh, lived in Italy for about a year, and we really love the country. We go there whenever possible. So we're thinking of maybe trying to replicate the same model uh, first over there, maybe buy a couple of properties for ourselves, run them for a year or two, and once we feel that we're comfortable uh, providing that service to other people, set up the same sort of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I don't know, as as countries, we usually focus on places that are attractive to us, that we'd like to, uh, that we're happy to come and visit for extended periods at any one time. Yeah. So probably um, each of those takes a good five, six, seven, eight years to set up and uh, become proficient in so i'm not sure how many of them we can still get in but we'll try yeah so your your idea is more to keep the business plan that you have now and replicate it as opposed to uh possibly bring on a property management arm to your company i would think so i mean for us doing property management especially when people are interested in short-term leases um, meaning there's a lot of check-ins and check-outs and, and you have to constantly inspect and you have to physically increase the staff who are able to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are comfortable being the uh, portfolio manager or project manager. That's both of our backgrounds too. I mean, uh, Chikako and I both come from uh, IT project management background. She was an um, international channel manager for KVDI and I was uh, 
head of the, like a project services department for like a big IT integrator. Mm-hmm. So we're very comfortable with um, sort of spreadsheets, third party um, working model. So I think we'll just stick to what we're good at. And as you envision your yourself expanding to Italy and possibly beyond, how how does the the family fit into that? Is your is your son or, or your your children coming along with those trips with you more often? Um, well, by that point, that will probably depend on them, I guess. Right? Like my son's ten years old now. Okay. Um, by the time we're going to be expanding, um, whether he'll want to, you know, take his schooling to another country or if he'll want to, you know, come with us and then come back, it's entirely up to him. I mean, I'm, I'm happy with him. I asked him a while back, like, uh, we're doing like a little gratitude exercise. I didn't call it that. So that sort of would turn him off, but I just said, Oh, what are the things you really like about your life? And, uh, one of the things he brought up aside from, uh, you know, his family and friends and so forth was just the fact that he, can speak two, three languages and, you know, he sort of recognizes even without us actually ever, ever speaking about it, that that's an advantage in today's world. Yeah. So I think I'll just let him make his own decisions. That's great. Okay. Mm. And what do you foresee as uh, next for your industry? Anything, any disruptions or changes on the horizons? Uh, yeah, real estate, prop tech, I think they call it in real estate is, um, is a big thing these days, right? So Japan specifically is probably a bit slower to adapt, um, to some aspects of new technology in other places. So stuff like electronic signatures is taking a long time to take root here. Mm. Um, but there's stuff already starting to happen that's, um, I think pretty exciting. So there's, um, blockchain transactions are a thing. There's a lot of uh, companies working on infrastructures for that. Um, so just not having to involve the banks or exchange rates at any stage of the process. Not, not necessarily, um, not necessarily cryptocurrency, but just the infrastructure of blockchain as a transaction, peer to peer transaction. Um, and there's a lot of stuff going on. Japan's actually pretty on, on board with that. Um, for zero emission homes, just places that have a neutral environmental footprint, uh, either for big commercial blocks or for even for individual housing. Um, smart cities. Uh, you know, places where everything is connected and um, 5G is probably going to play a lot into that one. And once that's uh, spread out, if we don't all uh, die from brain cancer right after that, then uh, that's probably going to be pretty exciting as far as just as services and interactive interactivity of cities that we live in is concerned. There's already a few um, uh, prototype projects that Japan's been rolling out. Uh, so, yeah, exciting stuff. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And is is there something that you feel the Japanpreneur community should know about that maybe I didn't cover? Um, no, I mean, just um, somebody just starting out, as you said. I mean, um, if someone's just listening and starting out or planning to start out a business in Japan, they're obviously aware of Japan being sort of an alien planet compared to the rest of the world anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess maybe, again, just to learn from our mistakes, just um, they're not very confrontational here. So when you're working with other professionals on the ground or if you're marketing to Japanese customers, really try to learn to um, read between the lines or read the air, as they call it here. And um, you're not going to get in your face um in your face feedback that will help you see where you need to improve. So you have to just learn to read. And in your opinion, 
Do you think Japan is a good place to invest in? Depends on your character, doesn't it? As a personal uh, sort of preference. Like, if you're the sort of guy who likes uh, to find the best possible under-the-table kind of deal, shortcut, um, you know, just uh, get in there, make a quick buck, and uh, get out again, and then look for the next investment? Probably not. It's not going to be a couple of TRL and everything here takes a lot longer than that and has to be. But I, I mean, if you're, if you're like me, like, you know, kind of geeky and like everything with a paper trail and sell sheet kind of guy, and you like everything to be reliable and dependable and not having to look over your shoulder kind of thing, it's an awesome place to invest. Yeah. yeah. And one of the few, if not the only places in Asia where foreigners can invest. Oh, oh, you mean for property? Yeah, for property in Japan. Ah, um, yeah, Japan's the only place um, in the Asia-Pacific region, so including Australia and New Zealand, is the only place where there are actually no limitations on uh, on foreigners to buy, and everything is freehold. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, real estate-wise, it's a great place to invest, and it's, uh, again, affordability and hassle-free management. Um, but, I mean, if you're looking for capital growth, I wouldn't recommend to uh, bank on anything in Japan. It might happen, it might not. I mean... If the population issue isn't uh, addressed and the government's not doing that much to address it right now, mm-hmm. um, GDP growth and property price growth, especially now if they're going to end up canceling or postponing the Olympics and so forth. And even even if they don't, beyond the Olympics is anyone's guess. So yeah. if you're looking for a more speculative capital growth environment, this is probably not the place for you. Ziv, thank you very much for uh, taking your time and sharing your knowledge and experience with us today. If any Japanpreneurs out there wanted to get in touch with you or find out more about your business, where where should they go? Um, well, I'm easily found anywhere uh, online, social media channels, LinkedIn, um, Facebook, so forth. So Ziv Nakajima, again, I'm definitely the only one out there with that name. So that's not going to be difficult. Um, on a more official uh, more official capacity uh we've got a big japan real estate group on facebook uh we're also just japan real estate on instagram we're there and nippon tradings is the company name so n-i-p-p-o-n tradings with an s all one word dot com and that's our website and nippon tradings is also our twitter account so they can contact us there as well um, info at nippontradings.com usually gets referred to me if it mentions many. Again, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, there you have it. Lots of interesting stuff there. Hope you've enjoyed that conversation. We'll link to the Small Business Japan website in this episode's show notes, of course, as well to, as to our um, webinar registration and topic submission link again. Do sign up. Let us know what you'd like us to discuss on the day. And while, as mentioned, we've definitely got the download numbers to show us that you love the podcast. Thank you for that. Our average ratings are also very high. But we've only got a dozen or so actual reviews on the iTunes store, which considering those 20,000 downloads or so, we would really love to see more of. So do share the podcast with your own networks or acquaintances, but also do take a moment of your time, if you could, to leave us a rating or a review And just to help us reach more people that could benefit from our content, it only takes a minute or so to leave a rating, maybe two minutes to leave a worded review. We would really, really appreciate it. So thanks again for joining us today. We hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, from all of us here at NTI and at Small Business Japan, stay safe, stay at home, and you're good.